0: What a song we will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. Thank you, Sam and music team, for leading us in our time of corporate singing. This morning, I would like for us to open scripture to John chapter 19. We don't like to talk about death very much, nor are we very much interested to know how people die. I mean, think about the novels and the the movies our culture produces. They talk about adventure, yes. Comedy, yes. Even violence, yes. But death? No. We're not very much interested in how people die. Um, I think of of people across the world, people everywhere in the world celebrate birthdays. Nobody celebrates an anniversary of someone's death. Now, there are some parts of our world, possibly, where they they might do that. Very, very few. Even religions. There might be some religions that may have a day for those who are dead. Um, But again, we don't talk about this very much. And yet, when we think of the life of Jesus, its climax is not what Jesus has done In his life, it's not the miracles he has done, even though he did things that no one else has ever done in this earth. When we think about the life of Jesus, its climax is its death. No wonder that Christianity is the only religion in which one of the two biblical sacraments make us remember Christ's death on a regular basis. Friends, Christians have never been commanded to celebrate or to remember Christ's birth. I know that might be shocking to you, because for the last few centuries, we've been celebrating Christmas in in just incredible ways. And I'm not saying that's bad. It's just it's not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to celebrate the birth of Jesus as we are commanded to celebrate the death of Jesus. His death is the climax of his life. And this is what the Lord commanded for us. So therefore, this morning, we will look at the death of Jesus. John's gospel devotes the greatest amount of attention to his death. No other event or theme in this gospel receives three chapters of coverage. And today, we will look at chapter 19. If you have a Bible, Provided, if you're using the Bible providing the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 941. Let's begin reading God's word together this morning. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as a stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was a day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him, two others One on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews but that this man claimed to be the king of Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave it up his spirit. Now it was a day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it, and with the spices in strips of linen, and with wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Amen. This was the word of the Lord describing the death of our Lord. Let's go to our Father and ask Him for His Spirit so that these words might speak to us again afresh. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank You for the truth you revealed to us about Jesus and about his death, what it accomplished for us. We pray this truth would now edify your people and call sinners to repentance so that your name would be glorified in our gathering. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, why should we pay close attention to the death of Jesus? Why should we? If you're new to the Christian faith, or if you're a veteran, I pray that our time this morning will be touched, touched by God's grace so that we would all see the magnitude of the death of Christ. I know we've heard about it many times, especially if you've been a Christian for many years. At least you've heard it once a year at Easter. And then if you've commemorated many times as you have celebrated the Lord's Supper, as we will do later in our service this morning. But I pray that even though this is an old story, a very familiar story, I pray that the Spirit of God would edify us this morning and see it fresh, the beauty, the power, the magnitude of the death of Jesus. In the way John describes the death of Jesus, it really shows us at least three things. There are more things we could talk about, but at least three I would like for us to see this morning. The death of Jesus, first of all, shows us what is at the heart of human sinfulness. The death of Jesus shows us what is at the heart of human sinfulness. Look at what is it that led Jesus to be crucified. Pilate attempts three times to prove Jesus innocent. As a matter of fact, the first time it starts in chapter 18, verses 38. If you have your Bibles open, just turn the leaf there or look there. Verse 38 Pilate asks Jesus, What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Then look at chapter 19, verse 4. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. That's the second time. And Then look at verse 6 for the third time. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Three times. Three pronouncements of innocence from Pilate's lips. But none of these attempts work to convince the Jewish leaders. Look at verse 7. Explicitly states why the Jews um, are so vehement against Jesus. Look at verse 7. Because he claimed to be the Son of God. This is why the Jews were not going to give in. It's not simply his claim to be a king that bothered the Jews, but his claim that both he was a king and son of God. Verse 12 says that from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Now, here's the one man in this whole scene who alone has power to declare someone guilty or free. Pilate. He wants to free Jesus. But he can't. Why? Well, Jesus told him earlier, you wouldn't have this power if he was not given to you from above. But more specifically, more directly, if we look at verse 12, the Jews twisted Pilate's hands. They cornered him out. Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, how ironic, friends. Just pause and look at the scene. How ironic. Pilate uh, bragged that he was in charge, but he was not. The Jews, who claimed to be the people of God, got what they wanted. But do you know how they managed to do that? By threatening Pilate's relation to Caesar. In courting Pilate and twisting his hands, the Jews, however, fell in their own traps. They were concerned to make sure that Jesus was going to be sentenced to death. But in this desire, they themselves were cornered to show their true faces. The Jewish leaders end up protecting Caesar's interests. How ironic. (laughs) They, the Jewish priests, remind a Gentile governor of his duty to protect Caesar's interests. And they are the ones who, who remind Pilate, the Gentile governor, that he should allow no other king to live. Because that would be a threat to Caesar. Remember King Herod? Now the Jews, the Jewish priests, remind Pilate, the governor, that Jesus might be a threat to Caesar. But more so, the Jewish leaders do something else. They show their exclusive allegiance to Caesar, not to Christ. The Jewish priests side with Caesar against God's anointed king. That's the only way these Jewish priests can twist Pilate's arm to do what they wanted. The price the Jewish leaders have paid is that they are protecting Caesar's interests and declare their exclusive submission to Caesar, not to Jesus. So Pilate complies, not because Jesus was guilty. He had declared Jesus innocent three times But Pilate complies because Israel's leaders proved their guilt before God. It was necessary for the world to see how utterly empty Israel's religion had become and why the death of Jesus was so greatly needed for God's own people. Friends, what finally secures the death of Jesus shows us what is at the heart of human sinfulness. The death of Jesus is not about showing us how weak Pilate was to stand against the Jews, how weak his character was. After all, when Jews ask to change a language on the plaque, he says, no, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I've written what I've written. It's not about Pilate being weak, as we often hear. It's really... About the fact that the Jews were able to show their sinfulness, and by doing so, they really show what is at the heart of human sinfulness at worldwide scale. The answer is that people, the people of God, have rejected their King. Friends, this is not about Pilate. This is not about the Jewish priests. This is about humanity. We, God's creatures, made in the image of God, have revolted against our Creator and reject His kingship over us, not just in big things, but in small decisions. You don't have to do many big, dirty sins to be a rebel against God. As a matter of fact, small sins are just as big of a deal in our rejection of our king. Remember Eve? Remember what she did to reject her king? She just ate a forbidden apple tree. What's a big deal about eating an apple? Our sons and children all the time end up doing things we tell them not to do. What's a big deal about that? It's big because it's a rejection. Of the kingship of God over us. Oh, dear friends, sin is not just missing the mark. If you've been a Christian for a while, you may have heard that the definition of sin is missing the mark. Friends, if that's what you think of sin, that is a very weak definition of sin. I think we would be better off to forget it and replace it with a more accurate biblical definition of sin. I think a more biblical definition of sin is that sin is rejecting God's kingship over us. That's what Eve did in the garden. That's what the Jewish chief priests did in the court of Pilate, court of judgment. Friends, that's why sin makes us rebels, enemies of God. We don't just miss the mark. We rebel. Against God, we reject His kingship. Friends, without getting this full disclosure on our sinfulness, the gospel of grace becomes either unnecessary or uninteresting. It becomes boring. It becomes irrelevant. So the death of Jesus, or more specifically, what led Him to the cross, shows what is at the heart of human sinfulness. But the death of Jesus, second of all, shows us, how seriously God takes our rebellion. second thing that the death of Jesus shows us in this gospel is how seriously God takes our rebellion. In the crucifixion account um, of, of Jesus, John zooms in on a few key details. And some of them are about Jesus' clothes, about his thirst, about his bones, and about his piercing. Now I'm not talking about ear piercing. I'm talking about being pierced on his side. The common element in each of these details is one phrase that shows up in each of them. It's a phrase that scripture might be fulfilled. That's what unites. That's what puts together these details in the string of this account of the story of Jesus' death. Look at this phrase that the scripture might be fulfilled in verse 24, in verse 28, and then in verse 36, referring to two details together. I'm not going to read those. They're there for you. Verse 24, 28, and 36. What John wants to emphasize about everything else is that Jesus and his death was not executed at the whims of the Romans. The death of Jesus and the details of it was not executed at the whims of the Jewish leaders. No. He was carried out by God himself. Because God determined these details long, long, long time ago. And he had prepared and given hints, which is sprinkled over 15 centuries of history, to tell us a time will come when these details will really make sense. They may not make sense now, as they were happening throughout the 15 centuries prior to this death. But when they will all converge, they will make sense. Let's look at each of these four fulfillments and what they tell us about the death of Jesus. First, in verse 23, we're told that when the soldiers crucified Jesus, I'm just reading verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. That tells us how many soldiers were involved in the crucifixion. With the undergarment remaining. This undergarment, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. Now, friends, this is clearly the soldiers and their free will, right? they are no robots. They literally had free will. They could have torn that piece, that, that garment in four, but they decided not to. It's their free choice. Yet in verse 24, John tells us, that this happened, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast sloth for my clothing. Now, this comes from Psalm 22, verse 18, the psalm that Jordan read earlier, from the life of David, the greatest king of all Israel. Now, here's the amazing part. These Roman soldiers, they've never read these scriptures. We have no indication that they knew that this was written in the scriptures. They just did it because that was what they wanted to do. And yet, it's as if they're following a script. Now, this is just the first of the four. Let's look at the second. Verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it. Um, put the sponge on a stalk of his plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, what scripture was fulfilled? John doesn't tell us. All we know is that scripture was fulfilled. But if we look back in the Old Testament, we find in the Psalms, Psalm 69, verses 19 through 21, again, King David said, You know how I'm scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I have found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Our friends, again, the soldiers who gave Jesus to drink didn't know they were fulfilling Scripture. To give vinegar to those who were crucified, was the way to intensify their pain. The Roman soldiers did their job to inflict pain. But they were also fulfilling Scripture. God determined this detail because He inspired David to write those words eight centuries earlier. But you know who else knew these words? Jesus. Jesus knew them. John tells us again in verse 28, look carefully. Jesus said, I'm thirsty, so that scripture would be fulfilled. This tells us that Jesus knew the details of what had been written about him, that they were going to give him vinegar. So he asked for it, even though it would intensify his pain. He asked for it so that scripture might be fulfilled. Friends, even on the cross, Jesus was in control. Not seeking to avoid death at all costs, but seeking to fulfill the scripture, even on the cross, even in the detail of asking, I am thirsty. Third, a third instance in verse 30, we read, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that he bowed his head and gave off his spirit. Then go to verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing sudden flow of blood and water. The Roman soldiers, their job was to make sure, to ensure that the ones who they've crucified were dead. So since Jesus Jesus had given his spirit earlier, now they throw the spear to ensure that he was indeed dead. Now, again, this was their job. That was their duty. And yet, look at verse 36 these things have happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. None of his bones will be broken. Now, this phrase, none of his bones will be broken, shows up in the Old Testament three times. In Exodus 12, 46, in Numbers 9, 12, and in Psalm 34:20. Do you know what they refer to in those three instances? They refer the instructions about the Passover lamb. When the Jews gathered together to celebrate Passover, there was one big no-no. is one big thing they were not supposed to do as they slaughtered the lambs. They were not supposed to break any of the bones of the slaughter of the Passover lamb. Three times in the Old Testament this is written, and every time throughout history, When the Jews celebrated the Passover, they made sure that not one of those bones is broken. And now, when Jesus dies, not the Jews, but the Romans, who had no idea about the Jewish scriptures. Not the Jews, but the Romans fulfilled the scriptures. By not breaking any of his bones. Fourth, the act, the same part, Roman the thrusting of the spear. in Jesus' side was also a fulfillment of the scripture. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says, and actually, God says, "And I will pour out on the house of David." and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. This is God speaking. No wonder that the one who had to be pierced on the cross had to be the Son of God because otherwise this prophecy could have not been fulfilled. Even if another man would have been pierced on the side, it had to be God. God the Son. He was the one speaking in Zechariah. Dear friends, the actions of the Roman soldiers were fulfilling the Scriptures four times in this short section of Scripture, showing us that by His death, Jesus was not only the King, like David, He was not only the Passover lamb like the Jews celebrated that very weekend, but he was also the Son of God. And what do these four references of fulfillment of Scripture say about the death of Jesus? Even though the Jewish leaders acted willfully out of their free choice, they twisted Pilate's hands. Even though Pilate complied out of his own free choice to make the pronouncement of Jesus' sentence, Even if the Roman soldiers were just doing their job, every detail of this crucifixion was orchestrated by God. And not just in those moments of the crucifixion, but in the way God had planned them from centuries prior. You know what this teaches us? There are two applications. When we see how carefully God had planned the details of the crucifixion, Centuries earlier, this tells us two main applications for us. First of all, it should tell us about the dreadful weight of God's wrath against sin. God showed us very visibly how seriously He takes the punishment of our sin by showing us how carefully He planned these details way before the death of Christ. God, had planned for the greatest act, the greatest, the most horrific punishment to be acted out. And yet, the second thing we can take from this language of fulfillment is not only how dreadful is God's wrath against sin, but also how infinite is His goodness towards us because all these things have been prepared so that Christ would fulfill them, not us. Friends, this is how God showed us His eternal fatherly favor for all those who will trust in Christ. Friends, this is the endless glory of the gospel, the good news of salvation at which we will marvel for all eternity that the holy God would choose to punish His only Son, not us, for the sake of sinners. He took all that care to prepare the death of His Son for us sinners. Friends, if you're not a Christian, I want to make sure you understand what this word gospel means. It's a message of hope for those who are lost. It's a message of great news for people who are terrified. Friends, this gospel addresses our major problem. Rebellion against God. Rejection of God's authority over us. Revolt against his kingship over us. This is what brought the wrath of God against us. This is a terrible news, a terrible dilemma of mankind to which the gospel speaks good news. The great news is that Jesus endured the wrath of God in the place of sinners so we might have the life of God. And when we believe this message and we turn away, from our rebellion and trusting Christ's sacrifice for us on our behalf, we are adopted into God's family, receiving that new life from Him. Friend, if you've never responded to this Gospel, if you've never accepted it and turned away from your sins and turned to Christ, I plead with you today, respond to Him. This good news is for you. If you want to know more about this and how to respond and accept this, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Come and find me. The death of Jesus shows us how seriously God takes our rebellion, but it also shows us His amazing, unmerited grace and favor towards us. For He chose to pour out His wrath not on us, but on Christ. Oh, how sweet is God's favor when we understand how bitter is His wrath. I love the words of Thomas Watson. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Friend, one of the greatest things you can do to grow in your appreciation of the sweetness of Christ is to meditate on your wretchedness and on how you deserve punishment and then realize what Christ has done for you. The death of Jesus shows us Not only the heart of human sinfulness, it shows us not how seriously God takes our sin. The death of Jesus also shows us the power of God to change lives. As to the death of Jesus, a certain Joseph of Arimathea identifies before Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Nicodemus also steps in, providing extraordinary amount of spices for the burial. 75 uh, pounds of spices was beyond the norms of any Jewish rite of burials. Um, the fact that Jesus is also placed in a brand new tomb. It was clear that these two men arranged these things and they did something beyond and above what anyone would do. It was an act of honor. It was more like a royal burial. And yet, all of this was done for him who has suffered such a great shame and curse. How amazing. To be executed as a criminal and yet buried as a king. That's what these two men do to Jesus. Now, this detail is not just to fill the page, not just to to fill in the space for us. It has some crucial details, and the details are the people involved in the burial arrangements. Who are the two men who are giving a royal burial arrangement to Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. What do we know about them? Of Joseph of Amartya, John tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. Up to this point, this man did not have the courage to come out of the closet. How sad. Of Nicodemus, he was the man who came out to Jesus at night, in chapter 3. He didn't dare to associate with Jesus in the daylight. He was just a secret admirer of Jesus as well. What both of these men have in common is that they were secret admirers. But now, the death of Jesus leads both of these men to walk out of the closet. With the death of Christ, these two secret admirers of Jesus make their faith public and show their allegiance to Christ by the way they arrange for the burial. The fear of the Jews now pales in the light of the death of Christ, so Joseph is no longer afraid, and he goes even to appeal to, to, see, to Pilate and choose, he shows his true colors. Nicodemus provides this incredibly generous gift. These two men are no longer secret admirers. Why? Because they have seen the way Jesus has died. Now, friends, many things that people can follow Christ like these two men during Jesus' life secretly. Don't tell anyone. Just do it. You and God, you and Jesus. But friends, when we realize the true death and meaning of the death of Christ, you cannot remain a hidden admirer. His death was the most public act of shame done on our behalf. How can we remain hidden admirers of him who died so publicly for us? But you know what? In those moments, All that these two men saw and knew was his death. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea decided to make it public, even though the only thing they've seen and they hoped for was the death of Jesus. They had no idea what would come two days later. You and I, dear friends, know what comes on Sunday. And I want to ask you if the dread of the cross deters us today from following Christ when the glory of his resurrection is also placed before us, how will these two men shame us when they made their choice to follow Christ publicly even when they had no idea the resurrection would follow? Friends, if Nicodemus and Joseph could choose a public allegiance to Christ by simply seeing his death, what excuse do you have? when you know how the story ends and still fail to respond to him. The death of Jesus has power to bring even those secret admirers, to bring them out of the closet and make their public faith known to the world. I pray that this would be the day for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ you have shown us our true King, We thank you that in Christ you have shown us a true Passover lamb. We we thank you that in Christ you have shown us that God has come among us. He, our King, has died for us. Father, I pray that as we prepare our hearts to declare this gospel, not only in word, but now indeed through the partaking of the Lord's Supper, that you prepare our hearts for this joyous celebration, this joyous proclamation that Christ might might be proclaimed through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.